couple times, people say Happy Mother's Day. And when you hear those words, there's a variety of feelings that can come from hearing that. Like for some people, like it is a celebration um, because of things that your mom has done or that you play the role of mom. And so it's a day that we get to celebrate. And so maybe you feel excitement based off that. But then there's the flip side, and there's a lot of people that feel some sort of hurt or some sort of sadness, and maybe it's because of those um, words every single year, or maybe it's because of something this year that things are different, and so because of that, you feel that, and there's different emotions. And so over all those things, here in just a moment, I'm going to pray for you, like praying for you no matter how you hear those words that God would give you strength and encouragement today. The second thing, as far as when we say Happy Mother's Day, is we understand man, what, how important the role of mom is. Like that you spend so much time being able to invest in your kids and bring them up in the Lord. And so that means the words that you say, but that also means your actions. And there are some times that it's really easy to do that. And there's those moments that you're at the end of your own string and it's like, oh, how am I going to do this? But you continue to be that example. And so we just want to pray a blessing over you as you continue to do that role if that's what God has got you in. And so let's just pray before we jump into the sermon. Father, uh, we thank you for this day, um, that there is celebration that happens. And for so many people in this room, uh, there are things that have happened in their own lives and examples that they've been able to look up to with their moms. And so I thank you for that. And we do celebrate, God, for those that when they hear these words, um, there's some difficulty, whether by things in the past or in the present or in this year, feeling a little bit different, maybe because of an absence of mom. God, I just pray that your peace and your comfort would be upon each of those individuals. Father, I pray for the moms that you would give them strength to continue to be able to be the example, uh, to be able to hold the responsibilities that you've given to them. And so whether that means their kids are still in the real early stages or in the teenage stages or even adulting adults, Father, I just pray um, that you would just give wisdom and give strength and may we continue to follow after you with everything. And so God, again, thank you. And uh, we want to just continue serving you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Colossians chapter 1, because we are continuing our study through this book. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you a story that's been told where a little girl was in Sunday school class. She had a paper and some crayons, and she was just coloring away. The teacher notices that she is not paying attention to a single word that the teacher's saying. And so again, she's not being disruptive for anybody else, but the teacher walks over and asks her, "Uh, sweetie, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you paying attention? And she simply says, I'm drawing a picture of God. Well, this teacher, you know, is trying to figure out how do I deal with that. She's like, well, that's really neat. But at the same time, she wants her theology to be correct. And so she says, but sweetie, like no one has ever seen God. We don't know what God looks like. To which the girl keeps coloring. And she says, they will when I'm done with this picture. (laughs) You know, I love the confidence that she has in that moment. And I tell you that because over the last few weeks, we've started this study of Colossians that Paul is writing to these people who are believers in Jesus. And he says, I am so grateful for your faith and your hope and your love that I have heard about. He says, I am praying for you and your knowledge, not just so that you'll become smart, but so that you'll be able to understand what God's will is. And in doing so, you will be able to live accordingly. You will be able to live this life that is worthy of the calling that's been given to you, and you will be able to persevere. That's what I'm praying over you. And so these people in Colossae, part of this church, are still hearing this idea, though, that, well, maybe Jesus isn't enough. 
Like he's good, but maybe I need to pull in these things from the Old Testament that we used to do or things from outside the church that this is what you need as well to be able really to be saved. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to draw a picture of Jesus. He's going to say, this is who he is. He's going to remind the people of who they are following. You might ask why. Well, when you and I get an accurate glimpse of who Jesus is, we realize he is all that we need. We don't need anyone else. We don't need anything else. He is enough for salvation. And so if you're in chapter one, if you'd look about verse 15, right above that, I'm betting your Bible has some sort of a heading. Like it might say the supremacy of Christ or Christ is supreme. It might say the preeminence of Christ. It might say the centrality of Christ. It might say the incomparable Christ, or it might even say Christ holds all things together. Those are the main ones that I saw in most people's Bibles. I don't know what you think of when you hear those words. You can probably get what Paul's about to say. Like I was thinking about the word supreme and going around asking people, hey, what jumps out at you when you hear the word supreme? And a lot of people were telling me like the Supreme Court, okay? Like the top court in the land, that's what comes to their mind. Um, There are some other people that were Star Wars fans and they're like, I think of the Supreme Leader or something like that. Um, There are other people that were like, there's now a brand named Supreme. Didn't even know that, but I learned that. Um, Some people are thinking of the 1960s girls group, you know, the Supremes and, and the songs that maybe they sing. I guess I'm a food guy because I think of pizza. Like, that's what comes to my mind, you know. But, you know, who needs like cheese or like one or two toppings when you can have Supreme? You know, all the toppings there. And now all the pizza places have gone even crazier and made all these different styles. But Supreme, this is the mega pizza. I was thinking back to as I was growing up and I went into Taco Bell, you can order a taco or a taco Supreme. Do you know what makes it a Supreme? Sour cream and diced tomatoes. Can I tell you that doesn't make something supreme to me? <laughs> like, I like both of those, but that doesn't mean this, super, this taco is just amazing compared to everything else. But we're about to see that Jesus is supreme. He is ultimate. Or this word preeminent, you probably go around using it quite often, but we'll talk about it anyway. Pre, the idea of before and imminent. It means this idea of something that is high, high statute, high ranking, high station, high repute. And so when you talk about something being preeminent, it is higher than high. It is ultra important. In fact, the Greek word that we get this supremacy or preeminent means the idea that it holds first place. And so Jesus, he is central. He is the one that holds everything together. And that's even what we just get from the little title that's not even inspired. So let's jump in to see what Paul is telling these people about Jesus from Colossians. We're going to read verses 15 through 19. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and power or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So I want to stop right there because there are all these phrases that we could look at that, again, Paul is saying, this is who Jesus is. So he says, he is the image of the invisible God. 
While you and I are on this earth, we cannot see God with our eyes. Like he is in heaven. One day we will, but right now we don't. We, see, we know his spirit is with us. You see his handiwork everywhere, but our eyes do not see him as he is the invisible God. However, Jesus came as the image of the invisible God. Image, likeness, representation. But it's not the first time that we hear the word image. In fact, if you were to turn to Genesis, way back in chapter one, when God is creating everything, he said, let us make man in our image. And so male and female, he created them in his image. You and I, we have the qualities of God. We're not God, but we have qualities like him. And so then when Jesus comes on the scene, he even takes it a step further as far as being in the image of God. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 says he is the exact representation. And so to the people here in Colossae, when they're thinking about who Jesus is, Paul says that he is God, and he's not a lesser God. Verse 19 that we just read said that God was happy. He was pleased to let all of his fullness dwell in him. And so why should I choose to worship Jesus only and not pull in anything else? Well, the answer is because he is the God that I can see. But Paul doesn't stop there. He also uses this idea that he is the firstborn of all creation, there are some religions out there that believe in Jesus, but they don't necessarily believe he's the son of God. Or in believing who he is, they will say that this means that God created him first before everything else. Okay, that's what firstborn has to mean, except that's not true. Like that's not what firstborn means. Oftentimes we think about it as being your first child, and most of the time that's what it means. But here it really means the idea of the rights that are associated with the firstborn. In fact, back in biblical times, the person who was the oldest that was born that had the firstborn, you got double the inheritance to everybody else in your family. And so some of you who are like the oldest, you're like, man, I was born in the wrong times. You would have loved to be able to have that. But there was also this importance of carrying on your family name if you were that firstborn. So there were rights and responsibilities that were tied into that. And so again, most of the time that was your oldest child. But we read about how David was referred to as the firstborn. And we know he had older brothers. We read about a time when Esau is hungry, so he sells his birthright to Jacob. And so Jacob now has the rights as the firstborn, even though he's not the oldest. We read about how Jacob is on his deathbed, and he transfers the firstborn rights from Reuben to Joseph. And so when we're talking about firstborn, it's saying this is the one that has the rights. He is heir over all things. He has priority. He has sovereignty. And then even in our text a little bit farther, it says he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. Like he is the first to be able to rise and stay risen. Because there had been other people that had been raised from the dead, but they unfortunately had to experience death again. But Jesus, he's the first to rise from the dead and continue to stay alive. And so if you're a person here in the church in Colossae and you're trying to figure out is Jesus really worth worshiping? No one else in all of history can claim the title that you were firstborn over all creation or firstborn among the dead. But just in case you might still think, well, I think that he was created by God. Man, Paul jumps on that. He says, no, he is also the creator. Like Jesus is the creator. In fact, in verse 16, it says, by him, all things were created. At the end of verse 16, 
all things were created by him and for him. Just in case you didn't get that, that means all, okay? All means all, not some. And Paul again even breaks that down again. Hey, the things in heaven, yep, he made those. The things on earth, he made those. The things you see, he made those. The things you don't see, he made those. All the powers and the ways that things run, he is responsible for all that. He is the one that created this. And he's not the only one who has ever said anything like this. When the Apostle John started his book to telling who Jesus is, in John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made, but has been made. And when you get this understanding that Jesus is our Creator, and you realize He's the one that made all I don't need to place my faith in anyone else. But Paul doesn't just stop. Hey, look at the authority of Jesus in all these things. Um, He says, yes, he's done that, but he still holds everything together. And then he is the head of the body, or he becomes the head of the church. That's what Paul is saying. And so not only is he powerful over all of creation, this natural creation, he's the head of new creation. When you and I choose him, we are made new. And so this body of believers is who he is the head of. And so sometimes when we talk about making a decision for Christ, it is a personal decision. Like you have to decide, am I going to give my life to Jesus? Am I going to allow him to be the Lord? Am I going to follow after him and obey him and get to experience the benefits? You get to decide that for yourself. But then you don't just live this life kind of in a bubble all by yourself. You become part of the body of Christ. You become part of this living organism that is not a building, and it's more than just one set of believers. It is the body of Christ. And so as Nick told us even a few weeks ago, he said, we all have spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up that body, for helping one another, and so that we also might help people who don't yet know who Jesus is to understand the truth. And so why worship him? Because if I'm a Christ follower, he is my leader. He is the head of those that I follow. And so here's these people in Colossae. And again, they're hearing things such as the foundation of everything that you need to live for is knowledge or is reason. And Paul says, "Woo, that is not true. He says, let me tell you about Jesus, that he is totality, that he is power, that he has no rivals, that he is first in rank, that he is first in time, that everything is designed to run in him and everything is designed to serve him him. And so as you understand that, you should worship him. You should obey him and his voice only. Don't let other things seep in to pull you off. And if or when you are tempted to think anything else has more power than Jesus, like an idea or an ideal or a person or a group of people or a political party or a strategy or a system or a worldview, or if you begin to take Jesus' power and you think, okay, it's got power in this spot of the world, or even it's got power in this part of my life, but not over here. Like we kind of compartmentalize and say, Jesus, you can have this, but not over here. If we ever begin to think one of those two things, may we be reminded of the truth of this passage. May we come back and realize the faultiness of those viewpoints, because the central message here, the central truth is that Jesus is the supreme being. He is the ultimate power in the entire universe, and he is trustworthy. You could trust him. No one else, nothing else is supreme. So why stay with Jesus? 
It's a real simple answer, but the answer is because He's Jesus. Now, in this picture that Paul is drawing for these people of Colossae, he doesn't just stop there. He also makes it personal. He says, okay, remember, this is who God is, but I want you to think about what He's done for you. And so if we were to go back to our text, again, verse 19, we had just read that God was pleased that all of his fullness could dwell in Jesus. Let's continue reading verses 20 through 23. And it says this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Said, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So I said, yeah, Jesus, he's the firstborn, he's the image, he's the creator, he is the head, but he is also the one who has reconciled people to God. That is who Jesus is. That word reconcile, it means bring back to proper relationship. Man, there are a lot of situations in life that we wish a relationship could be reconciled, or it has been reconciled. Man, there was a time frame that it wasn't. I want you to think about maybe, maybe there was an offhanded comment from a spouse, the thing you took that and you kind of let it sit there, and it caused you to begin to build up this small grudge, and maybe your spouse didn't even know it, but as you're sitting here, you're kind of wishing that, man, I wish that our relationship could go back the way that it was before those words were ever uttered. Or maybe you're thinking about your siblings as you guys keep growing older. Yes, there's some physical moving away, but there tends to be some differences in viewpoints on how we should live and how we should raise kids. And so sometimes those viewpoints can actually cause you to pull apart to where you rarely ever talk, if ever. All because of something that happened that caused a break. Or maybe, maybe just maybe you had a boyfriend or girlfriend and your friend stole that person. Or maybe it wasn't even that. It was just someone that you liked, okay? And at that point, someone stepped in. But because of the anger that you had towards that other person, that friendship never recovered. Or maybe there's a situation that you really felt like you deserved this spot on the team or you deserved the promotion, but you didn't get it. And so from that point on, anytime you interact with the person who got it instead of you, you're a little bit passive-aggressive. Or maybe it's vice versa and they're that way towards you. There's so many other illustrations, but what you could just simply boil it down to is hurt within a relationship that started out small, or maybe it was just that gut, gut punch right off the bat that your relationship is not the way that it once was. And either secretly or not so secretly, you long for it to be the way that it originally was. You long for reconciliation. And as I say that, you even kind of sit in that hurt. I want you to feel that because in the same sense, our sin pulled us away from God. In fact, Paul even said, you were alienated. You were enemies of God through your own choosing, through your 
choices. In fact, there are so many people who are living right now that don't even realize that they've turned their back. And they're like, yeah, I don't even know, but they're living their lives the way they, they want. But God knew that we couldn't fix it on our own. So he was the bigger person and he took that first step to be able to fix the relationship. And so Jesus came and he gave himself. He allowed himself to be nailed to a tree so that we could have peace. We could have peace through his blood. And so for anyone who says, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. Anyone who says, I believe that you are Lord. I believe that you came and died to save me. I believe that you are supreme. When you declare that, he makes you holy. He reconciles that relationship and you no longer have to live in the hurt and the pain and things that we have caused him. Kind of that drawing that we did a while back, you know, about how our relationship with God was broken and so then that affects how we deal with other people or how we live on this earth or even how we think about ourselves. That initial response, that initial relationship was, was healed through Christ dying. And as we're talking about this idea of peace, one day Paul says we will stand before the Father and in that moment there will be absolutely no accusation against you that will hold any merit. You will have no stain of sin. And I don't know what you picture of what standing before God's going to be like. I don't know if you picture Satan there trying to say, well, he doesn't deserve to go into heaven because can I tell you about all the things that he did here, here, and here, here? Or maybe you think of other people and someone's saying, well, she doesn't deserve to go to heaven because of this or this. Or maybe you even picture it being your own mind going, I'm standing before God and I'm like, here's what I've done. I don't deserve this. He says that none of those things, none of those accusations have any merit as you stand before the Father because you have been reconciled. There is no stain or blemish on you. And it's not because you're perfect. Like Jesus, when he came, he didn't come to make you perfect. And you know that because you could look at other Christians and go, I know they're not perfect, right? You're like, I could tell you all about that. Or you could look in a mirror and you could say, I know that I'm not perfect. However, even though Jesus didn't come to make us perfect, he came to make us righteous. That when you and I choose him, we put on the righteousness of Jesus. So when we stand before the Father, he will see you as his creation and he will see you in the righteousness of God because the blood brings peace. The people of Colossae, they would have heard this. And this is the God that I am choosing to serve. And this is the God that we serve. Like, why should I follow him? Because he is supreme and he gave his life so that I could be reconciled to him. When you really think about the break that had happened and the restoration that comes, that is not just good news, and it is great news. Now, I do want to address a couple things in this passage um, that can sometimes be disagreements. In fact, I'm betting that not everyone in here will even agree with the things that I'm telling you. Sometimes when we interpret Scripture, we can go hear other Scriptures to, to help us understand this. Sometimes we interpret Scripture the way we want to interpret it. We want the Bible to say this, and so we're going to try to look for verses to make it say that. So as I tell you that, right off the bat, I need to tell you, I don't know everything. Hopefully you knew that, but hopefully you know that I don't know everything God is continuing to teach me. But Colton did a great job last week and was even telling us that sometimes churches can be like, we know this and we almost use that even as a way to like push down other churches. Understand that as we're reading this text and opening it up, it is not for the sake of argument, but it is for the sake of being able to understand scripture so that we can live it to the best of our ability so that we can persevere as Paul has said. And so one point that comes 
from this passage sometimes is something called universalism. Maybe you've heard that big word, maybe you haven't. Essentially what it means is that we believe that everyone's going to heaven. Everyone's going to be saved. And there's a couple different paths. One of those is called pluralism, that every religion you're part of, it leads to the same spot. Okay, maybe you've heard this, that no matter what religion you're part of, it all goes to heaven. There's enough scripture, and even when you line up all those things, that I could say, yeah, that doesn't work. But I just want you to know that's one thing that sometimes people will believe because we want people to go to heaven. The flip side is, and what comes from this text, can actually be something called Christian universalism, that it still requires Jesus. It still requires his death and his resurrection, his blood, but everyone will end up being saved in the end. And there's different motivations for that. Again, sometimes it's scripture, but I'll tell you, sometimes the reason that we have this viewpoint is I don't want to talk about hell, or I don't want to talk about judgment, or I have people in my life that are friends and family that they don't know Jesus yet, and that's a struggle to think about them being away from God for eternity. Or we latch on to this idea that God is loving, which He is, or that His love is unconditional, which it is, but we almost think that means there's no consequences. Or we simply don't want to be seen by other people as uncaring or unloving or judgmental or bigoted or some kind of hanging on to old books that like have, don't deserve like its place today. There's all these things that sometimes we're like, maybe that's the reason why we believe what we do. Again, I'm not arguing But I would like to point out that if Jesus really is supreme, then we ought to take him for his word. And that means when things are easy or when things are difficult for us to understand. And so I told you, though, that sometimes when we believe things or when we're trying to figure things out, it's because of interpretations of certain scripture. And so sometimes people will take this passage that we read today, and it says that all things were made in him, says that all things function in him, and all are reconciled in him. And so using this text, they'll say, everyone is going to be saved. You just read it right here. But I would tell you that's an incorrect interpretation of scripture. As I read this, there are so many things that say, Jesus, man, he came to save. He gave the opportunity for everyone to believe in him. But just because it's available to everyone doesn't mean that everyone's going to access it. There is still a choice. In fact, Paul himself, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. It's not all. He knows that there's still a choice whether I'm going to follow the cross of Christ. And so in 22, like who is saved? You know what? When you choose him, you are reconciled. You are holy. You are without blemish. You are free from accusation. And then you get to verse 23 and it says, if you continue in your faith. In fact, if you have the ESV or the NASV, it says, if indeed you continue in your faith. Like that stress is there. And so there's this idea that you and I, to continue to receive the benefits that comes with salvation, we have to continue following him. It's not a blank check just to go do whatever you want. There's this initial response, this decision, this surrender, and a daily choice, and I'm going to continue walking with Jesus that keeps the relationship alive. Now, let me tell you this. Having said all that, you might think that I'm saying, well, then our salvation is dependent on us. That's not true, okay? You and I, we cannot be saved without the blood of Jesus. It is built on him. No matter how good of a person you are and all these good deeds you do, you cannot be saved by your works. But I believe there's enough scriptures to show that I can choose him, but at some point I can say, I don't want it anymore. Now, there's the flip side, too, that sometimes people will hear me say this and they're like, oh, 
does that mean I'm saved? Like I, I wake up every morning, I don't know whether I'm saved or not. Can I tell you, looking at Scripture, when you choose Jesus, you put on his righteousness and you can be absolutely confident, you can be assured, you can be absolutely certain that he has saved you. Because again, he didn't save you to make you perfect, but to make you righteous. And so we all choose whether we will follow after him. And that's where I think that universalism does not match up with what Scripture says. Can I tell you one other small viewpoint? Sometimes people take this text in a Calvinistic kind of thought, which means that God already knows who's all going to be saved. In fact, he chooses everyone, so you don't really have a choice. You're either chosen or not chosen. So there's this thought process that some people will take that with this text in verse 23 when it says, if you continue. And so instead of like, if you continue and you have a choice, what he's saying is it's kind of like a hypothetical warning. Imagine this, that you're on a vacation with your kids. Okay, so you don't have to imagine too hard. You are in the front seat of your car, and as you've been riding for a long time, you begin to hear more noise in the back. And you start hearing like, mom, he looked at me, or she crossed the imaginary line, or all these kind of things. And even the noise is starting to get louder and louder in the back seat. And so, not in your finest parenting moment, but in that moment, you're like, if you guys don't quiet down, we're going to pull the car over, and you are going to walk the rest of the way. Like, it doesn't matter that you have 200 miles left, okay? Like, that is the threat, you don't mean that you're going to actually have them walk the rest of the way, but you're hoping that that warning will straighten out what they're doing. And so for those that believe that God already is choosing who's going to be saved, they take this if to mean this is just that kind of stern warning, that you need to continue walking along, otherwise you'll miss out. I'm just going to tell you again, there's scriptures that I don't agree with that, and I don't have time to get into all that. We could talk even one-on-one if you really want to, but I think there's enough scriptures that talk about choice and faithfulness and the idea of being able to turn your back on Him. But I will tell you this, I don't tell you this so that we can argue with people. That is not my desire whatsoever. In fact, I really tell you this so that you can control your own self. The idea in your life, I might choose to live in the faithfulness of Jesus, that I might choose to live on the foundation of him, that I might hold on to the hope and not swerve from that. And in doing so, that might make a difference to other people, but I'm going to control what I can control, living as a living sacrifice for him. So the people in Colossae, why should I follow? Well, because he's absolute over everything, and yet he loves me enough to die for me. Now, right before you walk out of here, you might even go, man, that sermon didn't have a whole lot of application. It's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Yep, it is. But I'll tell you this. If you need some application and you haven't gotten any just by listening to the Scripture, I don't know what's going on in every one of your lives. I know little bits and pieces through conversations, and so maybe there's something in your marriage. Maybe there's some health situations going on. Maybe there's something in your job that you're just feeling the weight of and all this stuff. Here's the application. With all that you're holding, I know where you should go. You should run to him. If he really is the foundation, the one that created it all and that will be with us all the way through the end, then instead of trying to fix it myself, I need to run to him and let him deal with it. And so again, may our lives continually be built on this foundation of Jesus and let him guide us as we continue in the hope as we follow him. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this drawing of Jesus that Paul made for us. God, that he made for the people back in Colossae as they were trying to follow you to the best of their abilities. And 
So even now, we don't want to take things just to become smart or to feel like we're better than anyone else. God, we want to take it so that we might live your will, that we might please you. And so I pray that you would help us in our words, help us in our actions. God, I pray for those that are hearing this message, this reconciliation that you offer maybe for the first time and might choose that. God, may we remember where we once were, that we were alienated, that we were enemies, but we do not have to live in that anymore, that you have given us freedom and peace. So God, may we live that out in every aspect of our lives this week, not just at church. God, may we know that you are in control and we can trust you. God, we do look forward to the day that we get to see you with our eyes. Until that day, we continue to follow after you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.